This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a growing list of IT projects on its to-do list, financial management modernization, supply chain and logistics updates, and many, many more. And then there's the IT elephant in the room. VA has a lot of attention and money focused on the Electronic Health Record Modernization Program, multi-billion dollar deal, and Congress isn't so sure VA has the bandwidth to juggle them all. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicole Legrisco. The Department of Veterans Affairs is done with a highly anticipated strategic review of its electronic health record modernization program, but it needs more time to digest the results and present a path forward to Congress and the public. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. It has already been instrumental in charting the path forward, and we're very close to finalizing the next steps including changes to the deployment effort to ensure that we come in on time, on budget, and most importantly, provide the best care for our vets and the best experience for our providers. VA says it still believes in Cerner's electronic health record, but it's considering changes to its own governance, training, and organizational processes with the project. It will also launch an enterprise review of both IT and physical infrastructure needs for the EHR. That's after the inspector general found VA had significantly underestimated the costs of updating physical infrastructure to support the new EHR. Congress is skeptical. VA has already spent billions of dollars on the project, and it's unclear whether the product at the first site is workable yet. The department wants $2.7 billion for the EHR next year. That's on top of VA's traditional IT budget. Congress is perhaps even more skeptical about the budget especially given VA's track record with the EHR and other major IT modernization projects. House members aren't so sure VA is positioned to manage the funds effectively, and it's juggling a growing technology to-do list. Dominic Cousat is VA's acting chief information officer. For the first time, have a really good picture of what our technical debt is. We do have a detailed plan regarding how to resolve it within the next, within a four-year time span. And then the important thing is you're never done. You can't just resolve it. You, you know, you have to refresh, you know, to industry standards, whether it be a four-year refresh cycle for end-user devices or six to seven-year refresh cycle for enterprise backbone infrastructure. So we're mindful of that. VA envisions IT spending will go up about 12% next year. For the first time, it'll tap into $670 million from the Transformation Fund. That's a bucket of expiring funds that VA can use for IT and other physical infrastructure projects. The department is also standing up an IT investment board with the chief financial officer, chief information officer, and chief acquisition officer all serving as co-chairs. Here's Kusat. One of the big things that'll come out of there is uh, return on investment assessments. With that, we're implementing a CPIC process, the capital planning and and investment control process, so that we understand what our investments are, what the decisions are in terms of priorities of the mission and business. And then in the end, before we make uh, decisions to reinvest, you know, what was the ROI on that? John Rachelsky is VA's chief financial officer. We were chasing our tail with new requirements that had ever-increasing IT costs, and we hadn't properly accounted for those and asked for them for the resources when we needed it. And so the IT Investment Board has, I think, done a lot to bring us together and to focus and make us much more disciplined. But we're not where we need to be yet. There's no question about that. 
Even if VA is starting to put the pieces in place to better manage its IT projects, Congress is worried VA even has the capacity to spend all that IT money. Congressman Matt Rosendale is the ranking member of the House VA Technology Modernization Subcommittee. VA is continually growing and creating new IT requirements faster than it can manage them. What concerns me even more is the recent boom and bust. OIT's annual funding has fluctuated up and down modestly over the last decade. However, the CARES Act increased the organization's budget by $2.15 billion over two years, which is equivalent to nearly half of the base budget. Responsibly spending a windfall that large is extremely difficult. Staffing is part of the problem. VA's Office of Information and Technology struggles to recruit and retain tech talent. The office is trying to hire 500 more IT specialists this year and 500 more during the next. Here's Kusat. We do need more IT staff to keep up with the pace uh, that the VA has grown and the VA staff writ large. And we do have a plan to get, I think, about 1,500 or so more folks on board. And as was mentioned earlier, we're trying to keep that COVID surge staff on board, make them take them from temporary to permanent. The department continues to believe the IT Investment Board will help VA better manage and budget its IT programs. It's starting to use the Investment Board now to make decisions about the EHR program. That's become especially critical while VA waits for the Senate to confirm its new deputy secretary. Here's Rachowski. We're working more of these issues through the IT Investment Board because they obviously have cross-program effects into IT, into VHA infrastructure. So typically what will happen is if EHRM has an issue or even IT or VHA and it's in that realm, we take it to the board. And I think as we described, I, Mr. Cousat and Mr. Parrish are the co-chairs. So we have a pretty good sense across the organization from a finance, IT, acquisition standpoint, what's going on. And we consider them in that, uh, in that venue and we have a broader audience there as well. So if there are residual impacts on other uh, parts of the organization, we all, I think, have a better sight picture of how it's going on. So we're running those through the IT Investment Board now. But ultimately, the Deputy Secretary is responsible for oversight in the final decision making. Nicole Grisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, 
that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. 
it's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, 
But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. But thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.